You can be praying for the children's workers downstairs. There's, there's a lot of them this week. You know, our children workers, that is a praise that we have. They love, greatly love the children that we have and uh, do an amazing job teaching and caring for them down there. Uh, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Job chapter 38. That's where we, that's where we will be today. You know, there are, there are many people today and throughout history that have experienced great suffering. And as a result, they've held their fists up to God in defiance and often yelling at him. You, you probably know people like this that have experienced trials that have, have moved them to such intense frustration. Perhaps you've been one of these people. Because of what, um, what you've endured, you either deny God altogether or, or you deny his sovereignty or his goodness and his justice. And, and someone says that if God exists, either he doesn't know how to govern this world or he simply can't govern this world. And so we've been making our way through the book of Job. And Job is a, is a righteous man. He's a godly man. We're told that he fears God and yet he's lost everything. He's buried 10 of his children. His livestock has been stolen. His servants have been killed. And he has boils all over his body. And he is writhing in pain. And so he had some friends come. And they said, well, Job, you've, you've suffered greatly because you have hidden sin. They have a mechanical understanding of the world. This is, this is what karma is, which is so many Middle Eastern religions have this where it's very mechanical, very rigid. If you do this, then this will happen right away. And yet we know throughout, throughout the book of Job, in the very beginning book of Job, in chapters one and two, Job is said to be righteous and godly and fears God. And God himself says, there is no one like Job on all the earth. So we know that he doesn't have hidden sin. We know that's not why he has suffered. But this makes us wrestle with why do the righteous suffer? And Job has wrestled with this why. He hasn't understood it. He feels as though God has treated him like an enemy. He thinks that his suffering, his suffering has caused him to question the God that governs this world. And I want you to just think, can, can we not relate to that? Have we not all seen tragedy in the world? And at some point, at some time, we go, Why? Or we go, how, God? Like, like, this doesn't make sense. And so today, we're entering into the final section of the book of Job. God is going to give two speeches. Today, we're going to look at speech number one. And in these speeches, God is going to answer Job's questions, but he's not going to do so in the means in which Job expected. His answer is going to be more like a satisfying paradox, you see, Job has basically said, when I, when I look at your world, God, it's obvious you're not running it rightly. And so God's going to say, well, let's look at this world. And let's just see who's running this world and, and what we can learn from that. And so I, I'm really glad you're here today. Like, this is a really, really good text. They're all good. But this text is meant to specifically fortify our faith. It's meant to strengthen our understanding of God. This text puts steel in our spine. This text is given so that you would be on solid ground so that when waves 
and winds of trials and pain and suffering come against you, you stay on the solid ground of Jesus Christ. And so the main point this morning is that that the text is wanting us to see is that creation is a gracious reminder of man's complete dependence upon God's perfect sovereign rule. God's going to take us to a tour through creation, and he wants us to see creation is his gracious reminder of our complete dependence on his sovereign rule. So that's what we're going to see today. And so we're not going to read chapters 38 and chapters 39 and most of 40, although we could. Um, But what I want to do today is is we're going to make our way through bits and pieces of it all. So we're going to read the first five verses, jump around, and then end on the last five verses. And so I want to go ahead and invite you to stand with me. And I want us to to get an understanding of what God is saying in his speech to Job and to us today. And so we're going to start out, and I'll, I'll I'll keep you informed on where we're jumping. Chapter 38, verses 1 through 5. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this? The darkens counsel by words without knowledge, dressed for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? Look at verse 12. Have you commanded the morning since your days began? And cause the dawn to know its place, that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? Look at verse 22. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow? Or have you seen the storehouses of the hell, which I reserve for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war? Look at verse 39. Can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in their thicket? Who provides for the raven its prey when its young ones cry to God for help and wander about for lack of food? Look at chapter 39, verse 5. Who has let the wild donkey go free? Who has loosed the bonds of the swift donkey? Verse 9. Is the wild ox willing to serve you? Will he spend the night at your manger? Look at verse 19. Do you give the horse his might? Do you clothe his neck with mane? Look at verse chapter 40, 1 through 5. And the Lord said to Job, Shall shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small of count. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. Let's pray. Our Father, our Father, you you rule and you reign at all times. There is nothing in all creation that exists outside of your rule, not even for a moment. And God, as we enter into this text, God, may, may, we, may we hear it like Job is meant to hear it. 
And Lord, whatever pride is in us this morning, whether we know it or not, Lord, I pray that you would reveal it, expose it, and remove it from our hearts, God. God, may we humbly bow before you out of joy and delight, knowing that you rule everything and that you are good and that you are just. And while there is mystery and there is so much mystery, we could trust you. We can trust that in your perfect goodness and grace and rule, that you are always working for your glory and for all who know you and love you, you are working for our good. In your name, Jesus, amen. amen. You all may be seated. So there is, there's, there's a lot we could say here. In fact, the first thing that we just need to see is that God speaks. And like we, we could just camp right here. Chapter 38, verses 1, 2, and 3, just God speaks. Like just imagine that. Just think through that. Job hears the very audible voice of God. Now, throughout the Bible, we see that God speaks, and he often speaks out, out of a storm, out of a whirlwind. You think about it back in, in Psalm 18 that happens, in Exodus, at the giving of the law, in Ezekiel chapter 1, in Zechariah chapter 9. Not only does God speak, but there's a storm around him, often showing the very presence of God. And in chapter 31, verse 35, Job cried out, answer me, God. Just like someone who's writhing in pain, who's confused, who's hurting. And God answers. Like there's a word of grace just right here for us to know that, that in our pain, when we cry out to God, he hears us, he knows us, he loves us, and he responds to us. And what we're going to see is that he, he confronts Job. In verse 2, God calls out of this storm. He says, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Job has spoken foolishly about God. Now, now remember, he's not suffering because of sin. We know that. But he has sinned because of suffering. And, and that is addressed here. Job has justified himself. He's accused God of treating him like an enemy. In chapter 12, he said that, God, you run the rule, you rule the world unjustly, as he describes it. And so in verse, and so God tells Job, you have spoken about matters you do not understand. And in verse three, God says, dress for action like a man. Literally, it's gird your loins, Job, or get ready to wrestle. But, but it's at this point, if we're not careful, we think of God coming down with a hammer. And he's like, I'm, I won't put you in your place. And you will never question me again. But that's not what happens. You see, God, God's purpose is not to destroy, but to bless and we know that because in Job 42, Job repents and he's blessed by God. That's the purpose. And so, listen to what Proverbs chapter 3 says, verses 11 and 12. My son, 
Do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. This is, this is quoted then in Hebrews chapter 12. What we're to see right now is that God, like a father, comes to Job. And he will speak sternly. But this is a word of grace. This is a word of kindness, of love. This is coming out of a heart that God has of love for Job. So that's how he is coming. You see, um, I was trying to think about how to illustrate this earlier, and I kept coming back to balloons, which I don't know why. But I could have 100 balloons in their package in my house right now. You'd never find them. I'm pretty good at hiding things. I have to from my kids. Come birthdays and all and Christmas, we have to put things in places that they won't find. But if I blew these 100 balloons up, there's nowhere in my house I could put them that you would not find them. And that's what's happened with Job. There's been sin within his heart that's been unrevealed. And God graciously through this suffering has, has revealed the pride. These, the, the pride within his heart has been inflated by his suffering. It's been exposed and so now God, like a good father, will bring him to humble repentance. And you might then say, well, how does God, speaking about clouds and the sun and water and donkeys and oxen, how does that bring Job to repentance? And how does that tell us that this world is governed rightly and justly? Which I think is a really good question. Um, one thing we need to realize Creation is not simply creation. And what, what I mean by that is we're not simply to look at creation and stop right there. Uh, for example, if, if someone was looking out a window and you asked them, what do you see? And they responded, I'm looking at the glass. That's not the purpose of a window. The purpose of a window is to look beyond the window and whatever else is out there. In a similar way, we're not to simply look at trees and, and rocks and sand and donkeys and oxen and all these things and just stop right there. Rather, these things and all of creation exist to help us better know God and how he rules and runs this world. These, and this truth is evident all throughout Scripture. This is what we talk about, natural revelation. But in like Psalm 1-4, the psalmist writes, sinners are like chaff that the wind blows away. In, in Psalm 18-2, the Lord, we read, the Lord is my rock and my fortress. So when we look at rocks or when we look at Mount Everest, we go, that's like what God is, unmovable in my life. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus speaking about anxiety turns to those around him and he says, do you see how God cares for the, the flowers and the lilies of the field and he cares for them and makes them beautiful and yet tomorrow they're destroyed? How much more does he care for you? The point is, look at creation. Do you see how beautiful it is? But you're made in the image of God. So if he cares for that, how much more does he care for you? We see this all throughout Scripture. Creation exists in order to direct us to spiritual truths 
that we understand about God and this world. So let's now turn with that understanding and look at the content of God's speech, knowing that as we get this tour through creation, God's not just bringing us into an early National Geographic film. Like That's not the point. It's all leading us to how we trust in him because he rightly and justly governs this world. So in chapters 38 to 42, God is going to um, ask over 70 questions to Job. And so I, I, have, I have nine points here um, in just the section that we're in. Uh, Raymond didn't think we should put them all in the, in the, in the guide and fill it all up. Um, but all together, there's like 20 points in this sermon, just so you know, if you want to keep point, keep track. When we've already done about four. So here we go. Number one, this is what we learn about God in his speech. Number one, God knows the answers to all his questions. Like, let's just start there. When we have questions like, where were you, Job? Can you, Job? Have you, Job? Do you know, Job? Verse three, God says, I will question you, Job. You make it known to me. But let's not think that God's actually looking for information. As if he's actually wondering, were you in the beginning, Job? Do you know how these things happen, Job? And God is not simply a genie in a bottle that Job can command. Like in chapter 31, verse 35, Job cries out, answer me. Now, now God has appeared. But what we see is God's coming with questions, not with answers. And in fact, his questions are the answers. But he's coming so that he is now going to direct Job that he would understand who God is. And it's through the use of rhetorical questions. God is moving Job and our perspective off of ourselves and onto the goodness of God's sovereignty. That's what he's going to do through these questions. They're slowly moving Job and us from ourselves and onto trusting God. So number two, God created a precise and beautiful world. And we see this like in verses four through seven. We're talking about the the foundations of the earth being laid. And, and these verses operate kind of like a blueprint. We read words like foundations and measurements and stretch the line. And, and God is like a master builder who is the one who has designed creation. And when the building project was finished, we read in verse 7, the stars and the sons of God, angels, they're, they're shouting for joy. And what we understand is that out of God's love and delight, he created an ordered world that sustains life and points to his glory. And then in verse four, God says, tell me, Job, do you have understanding of these things on how the earth was made? Job, do you know how I made everything? Were you there, Job? Job, you don't understand the physical world, and yet you want to judge the moral order of creation. Number three, God places limits within creation. We see this in verses eight through 11. In these verses, we read about the sea. Now, the sea in ancient literature universally represents evil and darkness and chaos in the world. 
We see this in Revelation 13. We see a beast comes out of the sea. In Revelation 21, uh, in Revelation 21, where God begins to describe the new creation. Do you know what's not in it? The sea. A thing that represents evil and disorder and chaos. Earlier in the book, in, in the book of Job, Job chapter 7, verse 12, he says, Am I the sea or the sea monster? that you have set guard over me? God seems to be saying that in his good creation, there is a place for danger in this chaos and this evil, but we must not think that these things run rampantly throughout the earth on their own. Look at verse 10. God says he clearly places limits and bars and doors on the sea. Verse 11, God says, Thus far shall you come and no further and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Nothing exists outside of God's rule. And nothing goes beyond the boundaries, the limits that he places. So the suffering that Job has experienced, or that you've experienced, or that you've seen someone experience, is not creation acting outside of God's control, like a dog getting away from his owner and attacking someone. That's often how we think about it. That's often how we describe it. But rather, in a mysterious way, it's controlled. It's contained. God is showing that which is completely out of Job's control is perfectly ruled by God. It's on a leash, and it can go no more than the boundaries God has placed it. Number four, God reveals his judgment in creation. We see this in verses 12 through 15. Job, basically, God turns and says, Job, do you know why the sun rises every day? Verse 12, God asks, Job, is, is it by your command that morning comes every day? God is wanting us to realize that every time the sun rises, it's because God says rise. Every morning is a testimony of the faithfulness of God. Do you know that? Sun, right? Even if you can't see it here in Washington. If we have no idea it's there. Right, Nancy? Even if we can't see it. It's there. And it's testifying of his faithfulness. But, but there's more there. He doesn't just want us to know. God commands it. Remember the window illustration. We look, we look at creation, but we don't stop there. It then directs us upward so that our, our eyes will be fixated on God. And so in verse 13, we read that every day the sun rises, we're being reminded of God's judgment. We're being reminded that there's a day coming where there will be no more darkness. There's a day coming that the sin and the wickedness in this world will be shaken out like crumbs from a tablecloth. Every day that's happening. Every day God is remi reminding us. Yes, there's darkness. And sometimes all you see is darkness. And sometimes the trial is so hard. You're not even seeing your hand anymore because of just the time and the frustration and the duration of the trial that you are in. And yet with every morning as we see the darkness is pushed away by the rising of the sun we're reminded wickedness does not win 
we're reminded a day is coming that the judge of the universe will wrap all of this world up, roll it away, unfold a new creation where there will be no sin, no pain, no trials, no darkness ever again. In fact, we're even told in Revelation there won't be a sun because God's glory illuminates all creation itself. Job, is, or the sun, is simply a, a temporary fixture in the sky pointing us to the very glory and righteousness of God that we will enjoy for all time. Job, do you know that? Job, do you know that creation testifies to the judgment of the wicked? Look to the sunrise, Job. Look to the sunrise. Number five, God knows the mysteries of creation. You see this in verses 16 through 21. Look at verse 16. God says, Job, have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Or have you seen the gates of deep darkness, Job? Job, have you seen those things? So now whether God is referring to the place of the dead or to literally the depths of the oceans, we, maybe both, but whatever God is referring to, the point is, Job, you haven't been there. But the answer to all of God's questions is not, I don't know God, but it's God you do know. God, you have been there. God, you do rule this. And so while God, or while Job has to say, I, I have not been there, at the simultaneously, he's also saying, God, you're the one who knows these things. You're the one who's been in the depths of the sea. Perhaps you, you've heard of the Mariana Trench. It's located off the, the Pacific Ocean. It's 36,000 feet deep. That's really deep. You can literally pick up Mount Everest, set it in the Mariana Trench, and have 3,000 feet of water above it. It's really deep. No one can actually go down there and, and survive, and yet, do you know who has walked in the Mariana Trench? Do you know who sees it, who knows it, who understands it, who created it, who designed it? God. That's the point. Job, you weren't there. I'm there. I know the mysteries you have. You don't even know exist. Job, there are things in creation you can't even explore. And yet God is saying, I have firsthand knowledge. Job, you... You have questions about morality and suffering and evil, and yet you can't even understand the things that you see. Verse 18, God says, declare if you know these things. That question is being asked to us today in our pride when we think we have demands that we come before God. God's saying, declare to me, what do you know? What do you know? And here's the thing, Job. You don't know the mysteries of creation. And yet God is saying, I do, Job. I know what you don't even know exists. And the things that you see and the things that you even think you know, I know far more completely than you will ever know. Number six, 
God rules the weather and the seasons. We see this in verses 22 all the way to verse 38. We, these verses show that God rules and controls the weather. In verses 22 and 23, we see that God has snow and hell for days of judgment. Like, that's interesting, right? Like, that's how he describes it here. He's like, do you, do you know about my storehouses of snow and hell? I use those for judgment. And we, we actually see that in the Bible. In, in the Exodus account, God brought hailstones upon the Egyptians. In the book of Joshua, Joshua chapter 10, we see that God throws giant hailstones against the enemies of Israel. And in Revelation 16, 21, we read that in the seventh bowl, God will throw 100-pound hailstones on earth as a sign of his judgment. Do you know where I keep them, Job? Do you know where I keep the 100-pound hailstones, Job? Job, do you know where my storehouses of hail are? Yeah, in verses 34 and 35, God asked, Job, let's talk about what you can do. Can you flood the earth? Can you send lightning wherever you want? Now, notice what God's doing here. He's reminding Job, you're, you're not God. You're a creature. I'm creator. And the moment we forget that distinction, we will always think that we know more and deserve more than what we actually do. The moment we forget that distinction between creator and creature. And so God, this is grace. We're saying, Job, you... You've forgotten that you are finite and limited. Job, there is much that you do not know, and there is much you cannot control. Now, beginning in verse 39, God shifts his focus from inanimate creation, like the snow and, and the sun and the rain, and he's going to speak about animals. Now, there's two things just before, as we're jumping into these. Number one, they're all wild. We're not talking about, like, the domestic puppy dog at this moment, things that man controls to whatever degree we think we do. But he's specifically focusing on that which is wild. Number two, there seems to be an emphasis on the young. Six times he's going to mention the young, the babies. I don't even know why. I'm just putting that out there. But there's something there, and I'm really intrigued by it, and I want to dig in more, but he mentions the young six times. So we already note something there. But here we go, number seven. God provides for his creation. Notice the questions in verse 39. Job, can you hunt the prey for the lion? Job, do you satisfy the appetite of the young lions? Look at verse 41. He says, Job, who, who provides for the raven its prey? When its young ones cry to God for help and wonder about for lack of food. Job, Job do you do that? Job, do you, do you give the lion its food? Job, the ravens up in their, their nests, do, do you provide their food, Job? Job, do you know who provides for the lion and for the birds? And remember, the answer is, I don't know. What's the answer? God, you know. God, it's you. And not only does God provide for animals, but we also see he provides for inanimate creation. If you went back to chapter 38, verses 26 to 27, we read that God brings rain to the desert to satisfy the ground, even when there's no person around. 
This answers the question. Does a tree make a sound in the forest if there's no one around to hear it? Yes, yes the Bible tells us, right? I mean, maybe. That's dumb. But what we do know is that God makes beautiful what you will never see. What does that tell you about God? One, it tells you, you're not the center of everything. And God, in his limitless sovereignty, provides for all creation, animate and animate, at all times, and he does this out of his delight. And Job, you, you won't even know this happens because you're not there. Number eight, God knows the intimate details of creation. Look at chapter 39, verses one through four. God begins to talk about the birth cycles of mountain goats and deer, which is exactly what we would have done in a speech talking about the justice of God and how he governs the world. Just as God has intimate knowledge of the recesses of the Mariana Trench, so he also has intimate knowledge of every animal. And Job, Job, do you know the birth cycles of goats? Do you, Job? Job, do you know how the wild deer, when they give young and how all that happens? Job, you, you want to question me on my governance, but do you understand life, Job? Do you understand how everything comes into being? Why is everything here? How does it come? What's the regular order and cycle of life, Job? Number nine, God uniquely designs every animal. So I would love to like just like five more points here um, on each of these animals and really go depth in depth because I think it's kind of fun. But basically, God's just from, from verse five to the end of the chapter is just going to highlight various animals like the wild donkey. It's known for its stubbornness. It's deaf, for the, it's deaf to the commands of man, and yet it lives in accordance to how God designed it. The wild ox. God turns to Job, and can you, can you control the strength of the wild ox, Job? Does the wild ox serve you, Job? Let us remember that we're unable to, what we are unable to control God not only has designed, but he perfectly rules and controls. And we come to the ostrich. This is amazing. Verse 13, the ostrich cannot fly, but it waves its wings proudly with joy and excitement. In verse 14, we read that she leaves her eggs on the ground so they can be trampled. We're told the ostrich is cruel to her young. Verse 17, God made the ostrich forget wisdom. The ostrich is designed by God to be stupid. <laughs> My wife will tell me like later, like you're not supposed to say stupid. But God literally said it, right? Like I made this bird dumb. <laughs> Do you know why it's dumb? It's not by evolution. I designed it this way, Job. Can you wrap your mind around that, Job? Can you wrap your mind around things in creation that appear foolish to you, but I put there by design? Do we understand that? Then we have the war horse in verses 19 through 25. This, and surely, there, we go from the ostrich, which is foolish, 
to the, the war horse, which is fearless. And, and what we see is that there's a stark contrast between these animals. One is foolish, one is fearless. Why? Why, Job? Did, did you do that? God is the one who designed these animals. Why did suffering come upon Job and not on others? Isn't that what we ask? Why'd he get cancer? Why'd this person die? Why did this happen and not, not to these people over here? Why are some people born with fresh, clean, running water and others die because of unclean water? These are questions that are hard for us to wrestle with and to fathom, and yet God tells us that in some mysterious way, it's all in accordance with his perfect rule. There are no accidents. And then we end on the hawk and the eagle in verses 26 to 31, where God ends by speaking about these birds. We, we kind of begin with the lion and a bird, and now we end with, with birds. And God basically says, did, did you make them fly? Did you design them so they fly? In verse 30, we read that they, they drink blood, and these animals seem to always be present at the battlefield waiting for the dead. Why do we end that way? Why does the speech end in this grotesque manner speaking about birds feeding on the dead. Now, strangely, we, we're actually given that imagery all throughout the Bible as a sign of judgment. Even in Revelation 20 and, and Ezekiel and all throughout the Bible, we see birds always are at the battlefield as a sign of judgment. Is God saying something about that here? Maybe. But as we transition now to Chapter 40, God, God ends his speech after he's given a tour through creation. And you can just imagine, he turns to Job and says, shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. All right, Job, I, I, I've spoken. Now when I speak, you will answer. What fault do you find, Job? What fault is there? It's as if God is saying, Job, there's so much in creation you do not understand in your small, limited understanding. What fault have you found? Wearing all creation is my governance, not sovereign, Job. Now, I want you to know what Job doesn't do here, and I think it's really, really interesting. Like, if you go back to chapter 38, where, where God says, dress for action, Job, right? He doesn't then just say, your creature and my creation, thus you don't understand. End of story. Nor does he simply say, Job, you want to know why I did this? Because I said so. He doesn't go there. Rather, God has graciously condescended down to Job. And through these rhetorical questions, has graciously brought Job to the conclusion that Creation is far more vast and complex and mysterious than you understand, Job. He has shown that the creation is perfectly ordered and cared for, and he has shown that his rule is perfect, and all creation is dependent upon him. Job, Job is wrong. The world is not chaotic. God does rule justly. 
And so how does Job respond? And we see that in chapter 40, verses three through five. In verse four, just look at what he says. Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. In verse four, Job has realized he's small. His pride has puffed him up. His pride said that God owes him answers. His pride says that he understands and sees things with far greater clarity than what he actually does. His pride has distorted reality. And because of pride, Job has ceased to remember he is creature, God is creator. And so what does Job do at the end of verse 45 or verse four? He places his hand on his mouth and says, I'm not gonna speak anymore. Listen, sometimes the most godly thing we can do is be quiet. I don't necessarily recommend you to say that to your spouse at all times. But listen, some of the most godly things we can do at times is is stop talking. We actually saw this and see this in Psalm 73. He goes through a great trial and he eventually comes into the house of God and he says, if I had kept talking, I would have led others astray. It is good to be silent. We know that suffering accomplishes many purposes of God. It reveals sin. It conforms us to the image of Jesus. It reminds us that we are creature. He is creator. But I think if we're honest, when suffering comes, and we need to know this for ourselves and for others, we often forget all of that. We forget God's creator. We forget that we are creature. In our pride, we want to justify ourselves. In our pride, we want to make demands upon God. We are simply one small speck of sand on the seashore, but we're the most important speck of sand. At least so we think in our pride. Let me ask you, when in a trial, does your head bow lower as you pray for greater trust in God's sovereignty, or does your voice grow louder as you grumble and complain? What Job is learning is that he has raised his voice when what he should have done is covered his mouth and bowed and prayed, I need understanding. I need contentment. I need to trust in you when everything is mysterious around me. So I just want to close with, with three things to remember this morning. Number one, look at creation. Look at creation. Creation, remember, it's not just simply creation. It's not, the, it's not just there for us to see and enjoy, but it's like that window. We look at it and through it, and as we behold the sunrise, as we behold the lion, as we behold the snow and the storms and the hell uh, that falls, we're reminded of truths about God. I want to urge you every day when you see the sunrise, remember, oh, a day is coming. Darkness is limited, just like every night is limited. Eventually, the sun rises and pushes away the darkness. And one day, all darkness will be completely and absolutely removed from earth. And you are reminded of that truth every single morning. So when you wake up, 
No matter how you're feeling, what side of the bed you wake up on, when you see the rising of the sun, praise God there's a day coming when the darkness will be no more. Praise God that the sun has risen because one day we know the sun will rise. Everlasting. Number two, look to God. Job, Job cries out to God. Now one thing we can learn about Job all throughout the book of Job He's always crying out to God. He never ceases talking to God. He believes in God. Yes, he has a faulty understanding at times, but he's always crying out to God. And listen, every time you open God's word, you are hearing his voice. Just as Job cried out, answer me, God, so you can cry out every morning, answer me, God, and then you can pick up this book, his Bible, 66 books, 39 old, 27 new, and with great confidence know you are hearing his will and his purpose in all of creation, including your life. God speaks every day. We want sensationalism, but that's only because we have blindness to this book right here. Every day, God satisfies you with the truths in his word, that he is good, that he's a faithful father, that he is with you, and that remember, like in, in Elihu's speeches, when suffering comes, that's not God's absence, that's what? That's God speaking to you, remember? That's what Elihu teaches us. Job, you want God to speak? He's been speaking. How do we know? When we come into the word, because the word reorients our mind and our heart and our entire thought process so we would move from ourselves to God. And even when there's mystery all around us, God's word speaks into that, directing us into the trusting our Father. Particularly, we see that at the cross. There we see darkness just reigning completely as Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came from heaven to earth where one day he's arrested and mocked and beaten and crucified and killed and it looks as though darkness has won right up until Sunday comes, right? Because on Sunday comes, the sun rises. Amen. And man, indeed, it rises showing us that it's through suffering God accomplishes our salvation. And so when we wrestle with why is this happening, and it appears that there is darkness all around us, and we can't even see our hand, we come back to the cross, and we remember that in the darkest hour, when it appears that God himself has lost, he is accomplishing the greatest purposes at that moment, that he would be glorified through suffering so that you and I would have eternal life. Know that when we wrestle and when we shake our fists to God in defiance, let us come back, cover our mouth, and be reminded of this truth. Oh, God works in the suffering. Oh, he works very, very powerfully. And we might see how on our times on earth. But even if we don't, we have absolute confidence that God is working for our good in his glory. Number three, lastly, we look to creation, we look to God, we look to one another. As I said, when these trials come, we become forgetful. 
I need you to remind me of these truths just as you need me to remind you of these truths. When people are experiencing difficulty, we often will move away from community. We think that we have to wrestle with things on our own. And yet what we need more than anything at that moment is a community of believers pressing in around us, which is why we read in Hebrews chapter 10, let us never forsake the gathering of the saints. Why? Because I need you. You need one another because we forget truths about God. We forget that we're supposed to run. We forget that the sun will rise. We forget that God accomplishes great work through suffering. And I have to be reminded of that. You must be reminded of that. Because if you do not, you will be washed off the foundation at that moment. God's people are a means of grace in your life. That we would continue to trust in God, persevere in God, remain on the foundation of Jesus Christ. And so I encourage you, when you're in a trial, stay in. And when you see someone in a trial stepping backwards, pull them in gently. God has graciously shown us today by giving us a tour of creation. Oh, there's much we don't know. And yet that's totally okay. Because our God rules it all perfectly. And we can rest in that. So God's not telling us, because I said so. But God, rather, what God has done is he's given Job a much grander view of himself. That Job would cover his mouth and in awe and worship glorify God. And so let us do the same. Let me pray and we will partake of communion this morning. Our Father, our Father, we, we praise you that while we are very aware that we are limited, finite, mortal creatures, God, you are infinite, you are limitless, and God, you are eternal. And God, may we rest in that truth. May we rest that your power, your rule, your sovereignty has no limitations. God, you make beautiful that which man will never, ever, ever see. And you do that out of pure joy and delight. And so God, I pray that today, no matter what trial we are in, that we would cover our mouths that we would not speak in pride and boastfulness and arrogance, but that we would cover them so that we would see you and that we would behold that God, you are fully worthy of all glory and honor for not only have you created, but you govern and you guide and you design and you care for your creation at all times. And God, may we rest that while things that we know and things that we don't know, all of it is in your hands. And therefore, may we praise you. And may we praise you that in the darkest hours, we know the sun will rise. And we long for that day. God, we praise you. In your name, Jesus, amen. All right. The ushers will dismiss you row by row that you would come and partake of the elements and go back to your seats and then together we'll take them all together.